Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Defense Deconstructed on the CGAI Podcast Network. I'm your host and Vice President of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Dave Perry. On today's show, which we're recording December 16th, 2021, we're talking about the first deployment of the Harry DeWolf-class vessel with the commanding officer of HMCS Harry DeWolf, Commander Corey Gleason. This episode of Defense Deconstructed is brought to you by Boeing. Whether it's today or tomorrow, Boeing will continue to be a partner to Canada well into the future. Commander Gleason, welcome to Defense Deconstructed. Well, thanks very much. It's a real pleasure to be uh, speaking with you today. So we are having this conversation literally the same day that the HMCS Harry DeWolf has returned to Halifax uh, after its initial voyage. There are a whole bunch of aspects of that voyage uh, that are, are really quite interesting and unique. First uh, circumpolar transit, uh, transit of North America in decades. The first deployment of a new class of ship by the Royal Canadian Navy in decades. First transit of the Northwest Passage in decades. So lots of firsts. Uh, so congratulations to you and the and the ship's uh, crew and on your initial deployment and return home. Start this conversation off by just telling us a little bit about that deployment, where where you went, and what you did, and then we can dive into some of the specifics. Yeah. So um, uh, you know we we, we spent uh, the first uh, twelve months bringing the ship into service, um, and then once uh, of course uh, Admiralty gave us uh, the tip of his hat. On the 4th of August, um, we left uh, Halifax and proceeded northbound uh, to Iqaluit. Um, uh, just kind of the, kind of a bit of a shakedown cruise for some of the new people that joined the ship. And then we um, uh, disembarked uh, some folks and embarked others, um, such as the RCMP and uh, DRDC scientists. We left Iqaluit. We made our way to uh, Nuke, uh, Greenland. Uh, to top up in gas for the, um, the transit through the Northwest Passage. Um, we left Nuke, we, we, and we also got some provisions. We left Nuke, and we, as soon as we pro- crossed the, um, the 60th parallel, we conducted a uh, ceremony, which we refer to as the crossing of the lines, where um, you know, we, uh, we introduced the, art, the uh, sailors to the Arctic, and we have a fun little ceremony to do that. Um, and, uh, and then we uh, proceeded no- north once we were sworn in and uh, King Neptune or Queen Neptune allowed us to uh, enter their domain. And then we made our way into uh, Pond Inlet. Uh, Pond Inlet was uh, one of the first of uh, three hamlets that we visited that were part of our affiliation, our affiliation with the Kikatani region. Um, you wouldn't know it if you looked at a chart or a map that the uh, Arctic, uh, the Inuits up north uh, have carved up the Arctic into six different regions, and HMCS Harry DeWolf has the uh, largest of the six regions. From uh, Pond Inlet, we went up to uh, Grease Fjord um, to, uh, to introduce ourselves um, to, the, uh, to the, the, the hometown of the president of the Kikatani Inuit Association, PJ. Um, he invited us up there back in 2018 when we uh, uh, when we first introduced affiliation of the ship to the Kikatani region, and so that was a really important visit for us. And then from um, Greece Fjord, we uh, transited southbound uh, towards an anisotropic fueling facility, and en route there, we uh, deployed a, a towed array uh, underwater listening device uh, for the first time, I think, in uh, in history where we were uh, dragging our, uh, a transducer through the water and listening for submarines. Um, we went to the fueling facility, uh, conducted an inspection there. Also uh, did some uh, ship handling uh, in and around the, uh, the facility to 
to kind of get a sense of how a ship would handle unassisted getting in there and getting some fuel. And then we transited from there to Arctic Bay, uh, which was the last of the, um, uh, the, the hamlets in my region and our affiliated region that we would visit, but not the last uh, hamlets that we would visit. Uh, we left Arctic Bay, uh, we followed the Franklin expedition, uh, went to Beachy, um, where we anchored uh, in a place where uh, the Franklin expedition wintered over for their first year uh, in their search of uh, the Northwest Passage. Um, and uh, we spent some time reflecting on the history of uh, the Franklin expedition and some of the uh, trials and tribulations that they were faced with in Beachy. And from there, we went uh, southbound through Larson uh, Sound uh, to do some uh, ice breaking, do some uh, training with my officers and my sailors uh, to operate in uh, thick ice um, over a few days. And uh, once we got clear of the ice, um, we started our way into uh, Cambridge Bay. And getting to Cambridge Bay was a real interesting um, a stop for us where um, it was a significant provisioning stop where we plan to use in the future uh, for sustainment activities. Uh, and then uh, from Cambridge Bay, we went to Kudluktuk. Uh, we anchored in Kudluktuk and that was our, our final visit to, uh, to Canadian hamlets up north. Um, and then from there, we transited um, west. Um, and of course, that, that was leaving the Northwest Passage behind us in our, in our in our wake, um, and we uh, rounded uh, Barrel, Alaska, and made our way for Dutch Harbor. Uh, and in Dutch Harbor, we—that uh, was our first uh, real stop after, I think, over 50 days of being at sea for the sailors. Um, really significant uh, milestone uh, for the ship, not just to traverse the, uh, the Northwest Passage, but the fact that uh, they were all sailing together for uh, you know quite a, quite a bit of the time at sea and get the first break in Dutch Harbor. And we had three days there, we fueled, provisioned, and just took a good break. And then uh, from there, we went uh, southbound and then began to introduce the ship uh, to uh, communities further south. Our first stop was Prince Rupert, where we embarked uh, commander of the um, uh, Maritime Pacific Forces, um, uh, Admiral Angus Topshi. And uh, it was quite an honor to have him on board. And, uh, you know, really, pleasure for the sailors who have never, who are all East Coast sailors who have never really experienced the beautiful uh, coastline of British Columbia. And uh, I made a point to navigate on the inside passage, which is just a spectacular uh, um, opportunity for the sailors just to get up on the upper decks and see the beautiful landscape. And we made our way to Vancouver. Um, and I, I, I would submit that kind of finished the, the passage between uh, Halifax and the uh, West Coast through the Northwest Passage because we finished off at a place that po most people wouldn't be um, aware of, I would, I would think, uh, Burrard Pier. And Burrard Pier is on the northern portion of uh, Vancouver, um, uh, Vancouver Harbor that is, I'm sorry. Um, and uh, the pier, uh, at the foot of the pier, used to lie a shipyard. And it lied in ruins for many years. And I personally only knew it to be in ruins. I, I didn't know the deep history of it, other than the fact that uh, the first ship, uh, the first Canadian ship to uh, traverse the Northwest Passage was built there. Um, so Vancouver um, and British Columbia have a really deep um, history uh, of the Northwest Passage in the Arctic. Um, St. Roche was the vessel belonged to the RCMP, was built in uh, Vancouver, and it made a series of transits uh, up north. Um, some of them really quite long that lasted up to two years. 
um, and uh, uh, and you know it was really quite um, uh, kind of a beautiful finishing touch to uh, what was a, a really significant transit through the Northwest Passage. So from Vancouver, we went to Victoria on Vancouver Island, introduced the ship to uh, some um, some some local folks and some business uh, folks and. Um, and of course, the Navy we went over to Esquimalt, and that's where we stayed for three weeks. Um, and in that uh, period of time, we were introducing the ship to the Navy, introducing the ship to fleet maintenance facilities, all the dockyard workers, all the folks that really need to learn about uh, what they're going to get in the future, because the West Coast will be getting uh, two of these ships. Um, from there, uh, we uh, um, took a long period of time that three weeks uh half the crew went away on leave and the other half of the crew uh stayed stayed with the ship and then they swapped up and got the opportunity to take a good long break and then we got back underway and proceeded southbound to san diego uh we spent uh, four days in san diego um and part of that was an introduction to united states coast guard uh, uh law enforcement detachment uh they needed to kind of come on board understand the ship because we were going to do some terrific work with them in the very near future. Um, and the ship has some really you know, fascinating capabilities. It truly is a Canadian design. I'm sure we'll get into that. Um, uh, but just to say that uh, uh, we went south, we were extraordinarily successful. We uh, made, a, made a stop in Panama Canal, um, or Panama, pardon me, Balboa, and uh, just staging ourselves to prepare for an opening to uh, traverse the Panama Canal and then continue with our patrols in the Western Caribbean. Uh, and then from there, we stopped off a beautiful Jamaican Montego Bay, we, where we suffered horribly. <laughs> and uh, from there, uh, we, we proceeded uh, northbound uh, to Norfolk, Virginia, uh, where we got our game spaces back on, back to introducing the, uh, the ship and its capabilities to the United States Navy, the United States Coast Guard. Um, and we had a you know really tremendous uh, visit um, uh, from all of the, the leaders, uh, uh, both locally and from Washington D.C. on board the ship. Um, and then from there we proceeded northbound. Uh, we picked up our fleet commander with us and our fleet chief, um, and uh, uh, we we proceeded uh, north. We made pit stop uh, in uh, Saint Margaret's Bay just yesterday. Uh, to get out of some weather, we planned on putting up our Christmas lights and all that stuff when we were at sea. Um, we couldn't do that because the weather was too significant. So I went to anchor and we were in St. Margaret's Bay, put our Christmas lights up, and we got back underway and proceeded alongside uh, here today, where we had a beautiful welcome from uh, our families, friends, leadership. The Lieutenant Governor was here. Um, the, uh, uh, the media was here. He made a great big fuss about us and made us feel very special. Wow. So I, I guess uh, on reflection of all of that, uh, I would offer that the Royal Canadian Navy doesn't launch a new ship very often, but when it does, it really packs a, a punch into what it does on the first deployment. Um, I, maybe I just start off asking you to reflect a little bit on the deployment to the north. Um, what was that like? Uh, you know, there's lots of discussions about all the problems and the lack of charting or whatever. So what, what was that transit like to do something like that that, that hadn't been done in decades? Uh, give us a bit of a sense about kind of the, the the weather. What was it like navigating through that area? Yeah, okay. So I guess the first thing for listeners to understand that uh, it, it certainly wasn't my first time up north. 
I've been studying the Arctic and going north since 2008. The Navy selected me many, many years ago to um, uh, to to do a bunch of research. I had no idea Arctic offshore patrol vessels were coming, but they certainly um, uh, wanted to uh, to to learn as much as they possibly could and have somebody up there that would do a bunch of research for them. So I was doing that and writing many papers and doing that work. Um, what I learned over the time was that um, uh, Canadian Coast Guard, uh, along with other government departments, including the Canadian Navy to some degree, had been working on developing um, uh, navigation safety corridors uh, throughout the Northwest Passage and into Lancaster Sound and some other inlets. And um, that work had been ongoing for uh, quite some time. But all of it was laying on the desk of uh, of uh, hydro, 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 hydrographers, pardon me, um, and uh, um, still waiting for them to put the soundings on charts. Um, they made some incredible progress in 2018. Uh, I submit probably 2017 to 2018 um, in getting that work down on paper and distributing it. So. You know, arguably, if you were to look at a chart, you'd probably uh, find yourself in this kind of a strange, strange place where you would see this corridor that's really quite wide, manageable, full of soundings, and on either side of it's uh, still, oh, you know, just, just, just white. So for us uh, navigating up north, um, the the only time that um, that we ever needed to go to a paper chart is any time that we went off the safety corridor. Um, and, the, and going off the safety, safety corridor required, um, you know, there had to be an operational reason personally for me to do that. And there were, I mean, uh, you know, going into hamlets and things like that, they, they, they're, not, they're not all well, um, the charts aren't well done that lead up to the hamlets and stuff, but certainly for, um, you know, the main traffic areas uh, going all through the Northwest Passage. And of course, Bellet Strait was done by HMCS Labrador many, many years ago. They're the ones who discovered and made it a navigable channel for uh, um, for the dew line. So um, lots of um, lots of work's been done in the last uh, five years, and uh, it is um, you know still a challenge. Uh, ice doesn't make it easy. Uh, icebergs and bergy bits and growlers and things like that don't make it incredibly easy. Um, the weather further south is generally dense fog. And when I say further south, I mean somewhere around the pallet. But we're doing our work with um, the United States Coast Guard and the Canadian Coast Guard with the um, with the motor vessel that for that uh, cruise ship um, uh, casualty event uh, where we're just exercising uh, interoperability. Um, uh, it wasn't dense fog. Um, but the ship is uh, incredibly prepared for that type of work. And so too is the auxiliary vessels on board. The auxiliary vessels have um, all of the navigation capabilities that you would see in a larger ship, although on a smaller scale. We have communications equipment, um, electronic navigation suite, um, AIS, uh, radar, um, just really, really quite capable vessels. And, um, and you know, we, we use those things north and south. Uh, and they have incredible legs to them. Uh, my my multi-role rescue boats have legs, uh, legs meaning distance to travel. On one tank of gas can go for about 180 miles. And uh, my big landing craft that's on my quarter deck, it has uh, the capability to go up to about 500 miles on one tank of gas. So an incredible amount of capability in the ship. So whether I'm operating in fog 
um, or, um, or, or, or dense rain or snow. A very little concern about um, uh, about the ships, uh, small boats being able to get out to do the business that we need them to do. Um, further north, uh, you know, uh, dealing with um, the uh, uh, old ice, breaking away from glaciers, um, that's always an issue. And then, of course, um, uh, further west in the navigable season, navigable season generally from July to October, that's getting uh, longer and wider um, as time marches on due to climate change. Um, uh, the, uh, uh, down through Larson, the ice was dense. There was no lack of work for the Canadian Coast Guard to support their uh, escort operations to get some of the industry traffic moving back and forth to support the hamlets. And one of the interesting things that I found was that um, when we were in Pond Inlet, when our first stop and in interacting with the community there, um, uh, the community were telling me how cold they were. And they, they really felt a, a bit disappointed that uh, their summer had never come. And uh, they're walking with winter jackets on and just on. Uh, uh, we were having a barbecue with them. And um, of course, for the sailors, they, you know, they, they sort of, something was the first time being up north. They just assume it's always like that. And um, to, to listen to the, uh, the people of the community to talk about how cold it is this time of year. Um, you know, for me, it was really quite fascinating, but for them, there was, they, they were a little surprised to, to, to kind of hear that. They kind of expected it would be, it would be cold all the time. And uh, in their summer, they really cold preciously. This is only last about three to four weeks. And, um, and, and they, they, they love their summer, but they love their, they love their winter as well. And they can't wait for the snow to come. Uh, and uh, because uh, it changes changes the game quite a bit on the activities that they can do um, uh, in the summertime. You know, they're, they're, because of the, the wetness of the ground and things like that, so the, the terrain that you're walking in uh, when you get to the beach is generally shoal, kind of tough stuff to walk on. Some of it's sandy beaches, um, and but uh, because because of the humidity in the air and the rain and things like that at that time of year, there's lots of mud, um, and uh, uh, it's it's. Uh, can be difficult terrain just to walk on until you get to a main road where they get it good and flat. They treat it, they treat it so the trucks and vehicles can move back and forth in the hamlets. Um, uh, and of course, uh, uh, once we got to further west, um, we uh, started to see uh, a little bit more um, growth in so far as vegetation and things like that. Kudluktuk um, had some beautiful grass to see, which um, pretty foreign up in the Arctic, um, but something that you're starting to see now um, up in the Arctic, particularly in the Western Arctic. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, you're not, seeing, you're not seeing big tall trees, but uh, the folks in Kadlaktuk like to talk about uh, how they go uh, south about uh, 30 miles from their hamlet or 30 kilometers, uh, 30 or 40 kilometers that is, uh, from their hamlet to go get uh, Christmas trees and uh, to the tree line as it were, and they bring them back up to their houses for uh, Christmas. Um, so the tree line is not that far away from Kadlaka. Uh, making our way um, westbound, uh, we were faced with a bit of a wall of ice uh, from the Beaufort Sea, but the, um, the, the, um, the Beaufort Gear, uh, which is a, um, uh, a current and a con constant current that moves the ice around pretty significantly. While I was uh, along, while I was at anchor in Kadlaka, um, that, uh, that, that, that ice wall opened up. Uh, which is a bit too bad because I was really looking forward to doing more training with the officers and getting into some thicker, uh, more challenging ice because that's um, that's old ice and multi-year ice. 
um, and uh, getting the opportunity to, to, to get, get the team in there to really refine some of their skills, particularly with using you know, power from the engines and pushing your way through those, um, those flows would have been really quite um, uh, uh, rewarding for me to have the opportunity to, um, to teach them how to work in multi-year ice in a safe way. Uh, but I guess that opportunity is going to have to wait till later date. Um, and uh, and as we started going southbound, um, uh, you know, we saw a lot of marine life throughout the uh, the transit. Uh, and uh, uh, but boy, when we were north of uh, Dutch Harbor, uh, the the amount of whales that we saw, the different species, um, we were trying to get into Dutch Harbor. And our policy is, anytime we encounter a whale, we have to kind of stop the ship. So we don't uh, interact with it at all. And uh, what was probably a three-hour transit to get into um, Dutch Harbor turned out to be somewhere close to about uh, eight to ten hours as we were crawling in, trying to get through all the different pods of whales. And that continued on after we left and um, proceeded uh, southbound uh, towards uh, Vancouver. Um, and uh, of course, uh, once you get at that time of year, when you're when you're kind of in, in the uh, Alaskan panhandle, boy, it gets pretty rough up there. And uh, we, we saw our fair share of low pressure systems um, uh, up there and uh, it, didn't, it didn't relent uh, until we got into the inside passage. And then we were leaving to go uh, southbound uh, from Vancouver Island down to San Diego. There was this low pressure system that was the most, the lowest pressure system of record uh, that we had to uh, really kind of plan around and avoid. There was already some uh, commercial uh, vessels that were at sea that lost their sea containers at sea. Um, you probably read about uh, the, the same vessel that made its way into the Victoria waterfront uh, and went to anchor, then caught fire. Um, and, uh, you know, those having sea containers floating around in the water in a, in a, in a and a low, low, low pressure system, uh, lots of waves, uh, lots of, uh, you know, very, very low visibility makes it incredibly dangerous for us to operate and for any ship to operate, that is. Um, and uh, uh, I worked really tightly with my meteorologists and we put together a pretty solid plan and we, we, we avoided it. We're just on the cusp of it almost continuously. We're, um, we're, we're doing um, uh, best on our, our four motor diesel generators to uh, stay to the south of it. And just as I got to uh, Santa Barbara Strait, I made a quick left and the low pressure system passed me and then we, we ducked it. And, uh, and then we popped out the other end to a couple of days later, uh, just to have the low pressure system kind of lose all of its strength and we made our way into San Diego. So that, that, that was the weather and the weather was, uh, you know, typical what you would think um, uh, we would see, but those, that low pressure system and the whole Alaska panhandle for my sailors. Um, they, they, they always hear about the West Coast being um, uh, uh, kind of a smoother body of water to operate in. And I can tell you that um, leaving Dutch Harbor and making our way all the way down to San Diego, uh, that wasn't their experience. And uh, I think the story is about to change um, when they start sharing their experiences with their East Coast sailors. Now let's take a quick break to hear about one of our sponsors. For 111 years, the Royal Canadian Navy has worked closely with our allies around the world. 
During the Battle of the Atlantic, Canada's Navy stood shoulder to shoulder with our allies. Many of the ships that Canada put to sea in World War II were built in Canada, and that tradition lives on today. Our sponsor, Irving Shipbuilding, will build the new Canadian surface combatant for Canada at the Halifax Shipyard. The CSC is based on the Type 26 Global Combat Ship Design, which is currently under construction in the United Kingdom and Australia. Canada's CSC will also be equipped with the Aegis Combat System, extending Canada's interoperability with six allied nations around the world. The new CSC will be Canada's most advanced ship ever built and is the superior choice to protect and support Canadian sailors. The Royal Canadian Navy has always stood up for Canada's interests and stood with our allies to secure them. The CSC ensures our Navy has the tools it needs to take that legacy into the future. So the, the Harry DeWolf class uh, is unique in, in several different respects. Um, it's got the design to be able to, to work in um, uh, work in ice conditions, uh, but beyond that, there's a bunch of unique characteristics in terms of uh, it's got a, a smaller crew uh, than some of our other vessels, even though the ship is big. There's some different arrangements in terms of how you, the, the crew interacts and eats together. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, about the sort of the, the unique aspects of this particular class, uh, and I guess what you learned about how that all worked um, from this first deployment? Yeah. yeah, so um, the ship, I mean, the ship is a length of a Canadian football field, uh, to put that in perspective. Uh, and if you put it beside a Canadian patrol frigate, it's, um, it's, it's taller than a frigate. So it's a really big ship. Um, and it's 19 meters wide, making it the, giving it a flight deck, the largest flight deck in service um, in the Canadian Navy at the moment, insofar as our naval ships. Uh, Asterix certainly has a bigger uh, flight deck, but um, uh, she doesn't fall into the category of, uh, of, of naval warships. Um, uh, so a crew of 65 requires um, uh, the, the capabilities uh, uh, of a ship that's full of technology. Um, technology that, the, the, that allows the ship to, or the operators in the ship, to allow the machine to run itself. So uh, what that means is that uh, um, I've got uh, a, a really sophisticated bridge that um, I, I close up uh, only three people on watch that do all the contact avoidance and the ship driving. Um, and it has an automatic piloting system that uh, I don't do this, but if I wanted to, I could turn on the auto automatic piloting system in the middle of a harbor and associate the ship to navigation tracks um, uh, and just push the auto autopilot button and the ship will actually drive the tracks. It won't adjust speed, but it will drive the tracks. So if I got a course alteration coming up to go around an island or anything like that, the ship will actually drive right around it without me touching it. Um, and we, we do that at, in open ocean. We actually operate the autopilot in open ocean. Um, the, the, the plant, the engineering plants um, is, uh, it protects itself. So if I have engines uh, that, that if, I, if I have one engine running and I need to increase my speed, uh, we generally have one or two motor diesel generators in standby um, and they just sit there in standby. So if I need to call upon that motor diesel generator, I just increase my speed and the machine takes care of it. Um, and meaning that uh, it'll bring up the, the necessary engines um, to meet the demand that I'm asking for. Uh, and of course, in stark contrast to that, if there's an issue with the plant um, and something like a, a high temperature alarm comes in, the plant starts to protect itself. Uh, so it'll try to meet the demands that I'm asking, 
so if I'm asking for 15 knots and it can't give it to me, it'll go into alarm, uh, but it'll do everything it can to continue to give me propulsion on something. Um, and so uh, that, that's when the, you know, the bridge team kicks in the gear and takes a look at the system and we can monitor the whole, the whole engines, uh, engineering part from the bridge to kind of get a sense of what's going on and what, what engines aren't uh, available and to get the operator on the bridge to adjust um, to the capabilities of the plant. Um, and that kind of rings true throughout the whole ship. Uh, it's really um, um, uh, self-reliant uh, uh, in, in a strange way. Uh, you know, it does require um, an operational inter or a personal interface, a human interface. But uh, for the most part, once the once once we've got the uh, the ship running and we're well underway, um, it's it just runs. You know, the machine kind of takes care of itself and just alerts us to any issues rather than us walking around the ship constantly and staring at screens and monitoring different uh, different uh, parts of the propulsion plant, which is a uh, you know a 1970s 1980s way of doing business. Um, the other thing is, is the ship being big like that, maintenance inside the ship is a big problem. And in, out of tradition, um, we have we, a ship like this, um, if we were in the 1970s and 1980s, we would probably have somewhere up to about 200 people on board the ship. And um, uh, one third or maybe even two thirds of that ship's company would be junior, and they would be responsible for keeping the ship clean. And of course, scrubbing the ship side and painting and all those things. With a small crew, everybody has to chip in, even the captain. Everybody does cleaning stations on board. I have my own cleaning stations on board, and I recall talking to folks in Norfolk about it, saying that if you were here an hour ago, you would have saw the captain with a vacuum cleaner in his hand. And that's not a, that's not uncommon uh, for to to see me doing cleaning stations in different spots. So we all have responsibilities, and I live up to mine. And it sets an incredible example for the rest of the crew. Um, and it kind of takes away, you know, the notion of uh, more senior people even bringing a complaint to the table uh, that they have to uh, participate more. Uh, remedial or menial tasks inside the ship. Not that they're really menial because they're really important to keep the ship clean. Um, but some folks may see it that, that way, particularly if they're senior. But it makes it uh, quite uh, um, quite easy uh, for a pill to swallow when you see the captain actually uh, on his or her hands and knees uh, cleaning the ship and uh, uh, pretty tough for somebody more senior to complain. The other thing is the main cafeteria. Um, and traditionally, maybe we break everybody up into three messes depending on what rank you are. And they all take their meals in, different place, in three, those three different places. So the interaction of the crew is really limited to your, your status in the ship, whether you're an officer, uh, chief or petty officer, or the most junior group, the master sailors and below. Um, on board, everybody eats together. And that really makes it really quite special. Um, and that really translates into something. I mean, I, I was just telling the folks today that uh, when they're asking us about the trip, you know, this is... Uh, um, you know, I've been in the Navy for 37 years, and so I just joined. Um, and uh, uh, this is the first time that I've come home and um, noticed that all the sailors just had to leave. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of tears in people's eyes. Um, you know, uh, and it was really quite moving for me. Um, but that was, you know, that 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 was happening all the time. I had um, a sailor get injured early on in the trip. Um, uh, doing an exercise with us at um, at sea, um, and uh, 
he was apologizing to me for hurting himself at sea and that he couldn't finish the trip. Um, and he was in tears about that. And uh, it just it just really resonates with, uh, you know, with the captain and with the crew to realize, uh, you know, we've got something very special here. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it was all of the, the technology, funny enough, um, uh, and, uh, you know, a big ship and a small crew working together that brought us that close together. And it's, um, it's really, really special. Um, and I hope that, um, you know, in the future, as these other classes, as this class of ships starts to grow from one to six, that, and different crews come and go, that they all, you know, echo everything that I'm telling you here today. Um, thanks very much for this. Appreciate the time and doing this uh, right as you're returning. Great. Take care. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Defense Deconstructed, part of the CGAI Podcast Network. If you like the show, please remember to rate us and leave a comment on your podcast app. And if you like our stuff, please feel free to check out our donation page at cgaiica slash support. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The podcast is brought to you by our team in Ottawa. And thanks go to our producer, Charlotte Duval-Antoine, and Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Dave Perry, and thanks for listening to this episode of Defense Deconstructed.